Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. What's an area, an important area for California voters to know that you do have some disagreements? Would climate change be an area where there's a... It sure would be. I mean, and Secretary Clinton is right, and let's be very clear on this. Trump would be a disaster, and she and I agree on that. In terms of climate change, which here in California, by the way, is an issue of huge consequence. Unlike Donald Trump, the people of California know that climate change is very real, that there is a drought here. And second of all, I worry very much about the future water supply, clean water supply in this country and around the world. I think we have to ban fracking now. Secretary Clinton does not agree with that. She thinks we can, quote unquote, regulate it. You can't regulate fracking effectively. And also, as Secretary of State, she pushed fracking uh, in other countries around the world. Those are pretty fundamental disputes. Secretary Clinton's choice of Ken Zal uh, Salazar to head up her presidential transition team has pissed off a lot of progressives, especially environmentalists, and with very good cause. In this video, we're going to explain why. But first, what are the stakes in this presidential uh, transition team? Well, it does a lot of things, but one of the most important is that it identifies, selects, and vets candidates for over 4,000 presidential appointments. And so as we're going through Ken Salazar's history, his qualifications, understand that he's not just helping to like figure out when the move-in day is going to be for the White House. We're talking about someone who is going to be extremely influential from the top to the bottom of the next uh, uh, executive uh, branch in terms of finding people. Hopefully people with the right priorities, but perhaps not, as we're going to see. So first, Ken Salazar, who is he? Well, he was Colorado's attorney general, a U.S. senator, and interior secretary before taking a job back in 2013 as a partner at Wilmer Hale, a law and lobbying colossus that has been called one of the most influential forces in Washington. But you might think, oh, it must be a very progressive lobbying firm. Well, perhaps not. The firm has lobbied for corporations who, in the near future, are likely to have significant business with the next presidential administration, and you're going to uh, identify a couple of these names. Cigna, as it pursues a controversial merger with Anthem, and we've seen how those uh, mergers go recently, Delta Airlines, investment firm Lazard Group, insurance giant Liberty Mutual, telecommunications behemoth Verizon, and Newmont Mining. So today we have guest Walker Bragman, who is an independent journalist that works on progressive issues. Welcome, Walker. Thanks for having me. Excited actually to talk with you today about your new piece that you just had published um, this week in The Intercept. It's about uh, Ken Salazar, and it's a stunning expose about his association with fracking. Um, I think that it's very easy to understand why no one's headed serious harm as a result of it. We can speculate, we can talk about hypotheticals all the time. But the point here is it is a regulated industry. Uh, it's producing inexpensive energy and doing a great job. It is not harming people. And certainly I would say that the Solyndra affair has harmed more people than hydrofracking has in 60 years. So I, I'm really at a loss. What initially brought Ken to your attention? So uh, Ken Salazar was Obama's former secretary of the interior, and uh, I have friends in, in, in Colorado, uh, and I know that fracking is a, is a big issue out there, and uh, it just, it was kind of one of those things, somebody told me to look into Ken Salazar, and, and uh, the, the 
because he had just I think he had just released uh, an ad that framed himself as kind of an environmentalist and um, so yeah that's, that's yeah Ken that's is definitely not an is. environmentalist <laughs> no no he is not that's actually a shocking claim for him to make um so yeah, so you worked with the Obama administration, and this isn't the first time we've seen folks within the Obama ranks that have been married to um, fossil fuel industry, um, as well as Clinton. I mean, Clinton has a long history of supporting fracking. She even sold it as some, uh, sort of a good idea for foreign policy. How do you think um, Ken's? How do you think Ken's relationship with the with the race there, the governor's race, is going to play out? In the 2016 primary, Sanders' opposition to fracking really benefited him uh, in, in that race, and it kind of hurt Clinton that she wouldn't commit to a flat-out ban. Kerry um, mm -hmm. Kennedy is is running against um, a progressive who, in my opinion, uh, probably will will benefit from um, his opposition to to fracking. Yeah, and I do think there's been some pushback. The more uh, folks learn about fracking and the dangers associated with it, I think the more turned off they become. Uh, now, was it common knowledge that Salazar had worked with Anadarko after the Firestone explosion? Because this was fresh information for me when I read your piece. Anadarko Petroleum is taking an extra step to prevent a repeat of the deadly home explosion in Firestone. The company says it will permanently disconnect all one-inch gas lines from its 3,000 vertical wells. The explosion in Firestone was caused by a cut, uncapped gas line attached to an abandoned well. Mark Martinez and his brother-in-law, Joey Irwin, were killed in the blast last month. And new at six... So I think it was the International Business Times and MapLite did an article about it that uh, revealed emails showing that he had contacted uh, Hickenlooper after the explosion on Anadarko's behalf. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say common knowledge, but it was public knowledge. Yeah, not widely talked about. See, these are the things that we need to do a better job, I think, exposing to the general voting population. The more folks have this knowledge, the more they realize what a mess our government and a private enter enterprise married together has become. You know, Salazar, as you mentioned, has a history of supporting fossil fuel interests, not just Anadarko. Uh, he voted for George W. Bush's um, energy bill in 2005, for example. Um, you write about the Safe Drinking Water Act. So I guess those records are out there, but nobody's actually put them together. I, I think a lot of Democrats and, and, and liberals still really love Obama. And yeah. he's sort of the, the, the uh, you, can't, you can't talk about Obama. And so there really hasn't been mm -hmm. the motivation to look into some of his appointees, uh, like Salazar, who really has been an ally of fossil fuels throughout his entire career while he was before while he was a senator and then as secretary of the interior he helped Anadarko uh, he opened up drilling in the arctic i mean this is a this is a mm -hmm. guy who who lives and breathes fossil fuels so but this is a really valid point you're making here's a guy in my opinion that isn't that much different than Rex Tillerson yet here we are we go after Rex Tillerson as him as appointed as a Secretary of State position, rightfully so, because Rex Tillerson does not belong in that position. But no, at the same time, why are right? But why are we giving a free pass 
to Salazar, who is, as far as I'm concerned, on paper, just as bad. I think Obama represented something to, to people that it, it was very emotional and very personal. I think people projected mm -hmm. a lot onto Obama, uh, a lot of themselves onto Obama, and were able to identify with him. Um, I, I know that uh, before I sort of started writing and whatnot, uh, I was a, a big Obama supporter in 2012. Uh, this is kind yeah. of this is you know when I was still um, in college, and the more you learn, it, the more impossible it becomes to to kind of just accept this narrative that we had this great president and then we got this awful president and suddenly America became this horrible place. Salazar is the, is the, is the real face of the Obama administration. Mm. And not, not, he doesn't, him, you know, he, he wasn't a major power player in the Obama administration more than, more than uh, somebody like Secretary Clinton or or uh, anyone else, but he the fact that this is a, a fossil fuel ally being appointed to uh, protect public lands that is the real face of the Obama administration. Industry friendly um, appeasement of 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 uh, large corporate interests. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to agree with you. Um, you know, I supported Obama as well in both elections, and I was quite disappointed at many of the stances he took because I actually did believe in the hopey, changey um, stuff that he put forth. I, I had been he public policy uh, nonprofit with a nonprofit for a couple of years on the board, and Obama, when it was, he was a senator, actually sponsored one of our bills, was which was about microbicides, um, which is an AIDS prevention tool uh, for women. But, you know, and when he decided to run for office, it was like, oh, thank God, finally we're going to get a progressive into office who's not going to be handing more of our uh, government over to private interests. But in many ways, he sort of accelerated the pace at which we were doing that. Um, so the idea that, I agree with you, the idea that Trump is the disease and not a symptom of the disease that's existed for quite a while now is just sort of a bankrupt position. He's also a disease, let me make clear. but <laughs> but. But the reason he was elected is, I think, due to sort of failed neoliberal policies, you know, privatization, uh, corporate oligarchy, all of these things that um, you're talking about. So, you know, at many levels, I think what you discuss in this article is his intervention with uh, the Colorado governor's race is sort of a proxy for what we're seeing across the nation. You know, we've had the uh, primary in California this week and several other states. We have a couple more coming up in the next week. But time and time again, we see the DCCC sort of putting the thumb on the scale and trying to, trying to tilt these elections towards corporate Democrats, towards establishment. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think with Salazar in this situation in Colorado is sort of a proxy for these things? Look, I, I, I do think that he's sort of a, a proxy for, for the nation. I, I, I think Polis stands a very real chance in the governor's race. The controversial practice of hydraulic fracturing in Colorado is getting some attention at the federal level. Today, Congressman Jared Polis visited some Erie residents about their concerns over the safety of fracking. Fox 31's Tammy Vigil joins us live in Erie from one of the drilling sites. Tammy? 
Ron, last week, uh, Erie enacted a six-month moratorium on any new gas drilling permits. Existing ones like that can continue to work. A new study shows that the propane in the air in Erie is worse than in Los Angeles or Houston. It is this air, along with a number of other issues, that brought Congressman Jared Polis here to help. This oil and gas has been underneath the ground in of years. They need to just kind of take a time out and show me scientific proof that this is safe. Rod Bruski moved to the country from Denver a year ago for the fresh air, a slower pace, and better quality of life for his kids. I think it's pretty bad. You breathe, like, fumes and stuff. But he fears fracking will ruin all of it. Fracking pumps water and chemicals underground at high pressure to crack rock and release oil and natural gas. It's a threat to my family's dream. <sighs> It's a threat to our health and safety. It's those fracking fears bringing Congressman Jared Polis to visit Brewski. See the fumes. And others whose homes are about 100 feet from a completed mining site. This is what poured out of it last summer. It's clearer now, but some say still potentially dangerous. Those hydrocarbon vapors are uh, poisonous fumes that, um, as you can tell right now, the wind is blowing towards us and blowing towards these homes that are only 100 feet away. Mothers are worried. They breathe this here at home and then they go to school and they breathe it at school. There's no escape for these kids. There's, there's no escape. Polis is sympathetic to families who say they didn't move here. This goes in right next door. For city-like problems. Colorado is wide open. When there are huge tracts of land where it's not, you know, 300 feet from a daycare center or in somebody's backyard. Now, Polis has introduced two fracking bills to protect the air and water, and he'll introduce a third that would require fracking operations be a certain distance from schools and daycares. Meanwhile, the oil and gas industry insists fracking is safe, that it follows a multitude of state and federal regulations. In Erie, Tammy V. Hill, Fox 31, Denver. However, uh, it's very clear that the establishment interests are lined up against him. So mm -hmm. we, I would also not be surprised to see Kerry Kennedy win. Um, however, mm -hmm. uh, I, I will say that this is something, and this is something I've been saying for a while, that they can't, they can't, they're not going to win every race. There are some races where the establishment influence will carry the day. Uh, we've yeah. seen that. We've kind of gone back and forth. Uh, the establishment will have a big day. Then the progressive wing will have a big day. Our revolution candidates will win big. Uh, and that's, that's really, I think what we're going to see we and and I think it's important to remember that the Tea Party also had a similar uh had had a similar start they didn't mm. win every race um and then mm -hmm. when they made it to general the general election only about 32% of Tea Party candidates won but the small mm -hmm. minority of ideological Tea Party candidates that ultimately ended up winning office uh, that small minority was enough to transform the Republican Party. Um, and I think that we're going to see that with progressives. We're going to see that the small number of progressives that do win are so vocal and so energized that they will transform the Democratic Party. And then over the next few election cycles, we're going to see more progressives start winning. And frankly, candidates like Pelosi are on borrowed time. Yeah, you know, um, let's talk about that for a second, because I agree with you, uh, and you're right, it only takes a small amount of really vocal, strong candidates to sort of sway the conversation. 
Democrat Gavin Newsom, the frontrunner for governor, is now touting the pivotal role California could play this November. Democrats need to gain 23 seats to take back control of the House of Representatives. With primary results still coming in, it looks like Democrats made it on the ballot in all of the state's potential swing districts. Initially, Democrats feared California's open primaries might create their worst nightmare. We had so many Democrats wanting to run against Republicans who were perceived to be weak. There was a concern they would split the vote and two Republicans would actually be able to get into the top two. One of the most watched races yesterday, that for the historically conservative 48. Representative Dana Rohrabacher from Huntington Beach did win about 30% of Tuesday's vote, but it appears he'll face off with a Democrat, either Harley Ruda or Hans Kirsten. And, you know, because we have an open primary system or a semi-open primary system here in California, it is very feasible for, for the state to end up with two Democrats in the general election. We've seen this happen a lot. And it became apparent to me that the worry was that that would happen, that there would be a progressive candidate and an establishment Dem candidate, and that the establishment Dem candidates wanted to face a Republican in the general and not a progressive. And I even got a text message, believe it or not, from Gavin Newsom's campaign this last week discussing the Republican candidate and how he was pro-Trump. And if you read this text message and you were a Republican, it sort of galvanized you to get out and vote. It wasn't a turnoff, so to speak. And now we've come to that place where I feel like it's sort of like a Pied Piper house of cards, so to speak, in the same way that Hillary Clinton was. You know, they pushed for Trump to be the opponent because they saw him as being a weakling and easily um, beatable. And I'm worried that we might be seeing smaller versions of that going on in, uh, in other races throughout the country, not just in California. Um, what is your opinion on that? Am I crazy or, or is there some valid thought process going on there? I think that I think that the only case that the establishment Democrats have at this point is, well, Republicans are worse than us, so you should vote for us. I think that's really – and that's what we're seeing when, when they when – they, yeah. When when this happens, I I, uh, I confess that I have not um, I'm not as up to date on California's uh, election as as you are. Uh, I've been working on this article uh, about Salazar for uh, I want to say like a, a week now or more. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a, a couple of the projects in the, in the in the works. But uh, what I suspect is going to happen is that we're going to see a bunch of narrow Democratic seats in winnable races. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, it, by all measures, Democrats should do really well in 2018. I mean, it's, it's uh, the president's party typically does poorly in the midterms. Democrats are, are more energized than they've ever been um, mm -hmm. with Trump in the White House. And, and actually... Uh, <laughs> So, so what I think is going to happen is we're going to see in November um, a lot of winnable races uh, go Republican. I think we're going to see Democrats uh, suffer some pretty narrow defeats. Yeah. And it's concerning because this is a year when Democrats should do really well. In fact, before mm -hmm. I started um, – uh, actually writing, I guess, uh, journalistic pieces, and I was just doing commentary. I wrote an article for Salon um, with, the, with the title, A Liberal Case for Trump, which argued that if Democrats won in 2016, they would be looking at heavy defeats in 2018 and 2020 ahead of the, mm -hmm. the census. 
and the Republicans would get to redistrict Congress again and sh effectively shut out any chance of progressive change for the next decade. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the premise of that article um, was that 2018 under Trump would be a major uh, wave year for Democrats. And, and in fact, that, that's what the, the conventional wisdom says is going to happen, that we're looking at a, a blue wave. But it does worry me when I see things like Democrats, a generic, poll, generic polls showing Democrats slipping and losing ground. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that we, we could very well see a, a bunch of uh, John Ossoffs. And that's that's very upsetting because the establishment would I, I think I think as I think Bernie Sanders said the best they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> that is exactly what they're doing there. I feel like they're being so unbelievably tone deaf and that they learned nothing. They absolutely learned nothing from 2016. The heart, the soul of the Democratic Party is definitely being uh, fought over right now between the progressives and the uh, third way, I'm going to call them third way liberals, uh, because, you know, and let's talk about that for a second. You know, the DLC, which is uh, something that I think just doesn't get enough attention in our conversations, and I think a lot of the younger millennials are uh, probably not so clear on the history of how we got to this place. You know, the DLC that was uh, started with a guy, Al Fromm, who was a Reagan guy, came to Bill Clinton, basically said, help me pull the Democrat Party more to the right and I'll get you elected president. I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing something into a smaller thing. They took money from Coke Industries, among others, and the DLC, I think, is really responsible at the end of the day for um, a, a coup of the Democratic Party, changing it from being a pro-worker, um, pro-socialist idea party into what it is today, a neoliberal corporate machine. Now I know the DLC has taken some shots from some within our party, and that it has returned fire, too. Well, I think it's high time for a ceasefire. <laughs> time for all Democrats to work together based on the fundamental values we all share, values violated every day in Washington by the ideologues of the Republican right. I have been involved with the DLC for many years. And I am proud of the ideas like the earned income tax credit, welfare reform, and national service that have come from its policy shop. In the 1990s, making those ideals real helped millions of American families. I've also been involved with other progressive groups because they too have good ideas like expanding preschool or immunizing all our children, increasing childcare for working parents. Centrist Democrats are feeling a little more isolated tonight. That's because of the impending demise of a group near and dear to their hearts. Chief Washington correspondent Jim Angle has a political obituary. The Democratic Leadership Council, a laboratory for moderate Democratic policy ideas and once chaired by Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, is folding. The DLC was the preeminent moderate think tank of the last three decades. They came along in the mid-80s and really 
sought to yank the Democratic Party towards the center. The DLC generated many of the ideas Clinton took with him to the White House. Bennett's organization, Third Way, has taken its place in one sense, but the DLC was more than a think tank. The DLC was a kind of moderate Democratic Party inside a liberal Democratic Party. Uh, it worked uh, particularly in the South and the border states, some of the rural Midwestern states, the Western states, to recruit more conservative Democrats. How did the Koch brothers help dismantle a Democratic Party? Well, this and is a, uh, a story uh, it sort of stunned me that you were interested in it because I've been working on aspects of the story for over 20 years and nobody's been interested. But if you go back all the way to 1988, there was a group that was formed called the Democratic Leadership Council. This was Al Fromm's group, right? Al Fromm uh, and yeah, Bill Clinton. Right, and the idea was to move the Democratic Party to the right. And uh, it had uh, it worked with people like, uh, at the same time, Pamela Harriman was having over uh, nearly 100 meetings with people who paid $1,000 a head to come to them to discuss who the candidate should be in 1992. And uh, she raised about $12 million. But meanwhile, the Democratic Leadership Council was working on aspects of how you uh, make the uh, Democratic Party more conservative. And uh, what I didn't learn until earlier this year was that one of the people who had helped fund it in the early period were the, was Coke Industries. So here we are now, it's 2018, and just when you think we, we're going to finally slay the third-way dragon, meaning that they've learned the lesson, they know that we can't continue in this way and continue to uh, win elections, we've lost over 1,100 seats, they're still pushing the same rhetoric, and they're still walking that line and still trying to defend these corporate candidates and corporate positions. So what does it take, Walker, if Trump wasn't bad enough? And I, and I really did appreciate your salon piece. I know you got a lot of crap for it. But it was it was some medicine that I think people needed to take to be a little bit more sober in their thinking of what where the Democrats were headed at that time. What does it take, though? Serious question. If Trump isn't enough to wake them the hell up, what does it take? Generational change. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> you have people that are are so set in their ways, and people in D.C. who who think they know how things operate. They know the conventional wisdom. They know how things have always happened. And damn it, why can't these mm -hmm. kids just like play the game the way they did? And it's, look, at the end of the day, and, and, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who are very pessimistic and very un upset. And, and, and to some degree, I have to acknowledge that my reporting has contributed to that. Um, <laughs> and and I, I, I own that. I'll, I will own that. And, and and say that people need to know what's actually happening. But uh, I'm an optimist. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that might be surprising, but I, I do think that this change that we want to see is going to happen. Um, it's not inevitable. It shouldn't be treated as inevitable. But I do think that that the, the party is is shifting and then an older Older folks are, are, this is not an endorsement of, or wishing this on anyone, but older folks are dying. Uh, younger yeah. people are coming up and they can't hold off the flood. They can't put down the revolution forever. It's going to happen one way or another. This country is moving um, 
in a direction that is completely untenable. Working people are working longer hours. They are making less money. They have less spending power than they had mm -hmm. 20 years ago. They can't afford to get sick. They can't afford to retire. Um, they're turning to the kindness of strangers to cover their medical costs. And this is after the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Yeah. People are living paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford to have savings. The birth rate is declining. Millennials aren't starting families or buying homes or buying cars. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, or, or making big purchase decisions. I mean, it's not obviously some are, but, but the. They can't afford it. I mean, so my generation, no. I'm Gen X. Um, you know, <laughs> The baby boomers literally walked up the ladder and then kicked the ladder out from underneath them. They they benefited from everything they took away. So at one time, you did have tuition-free public university. Even I benefited from that. When I was a freshman at UC Irvine, my tuition, and this will make every millennial out there throw up, my tuition was $400 a quarter at, at what it amounts to a public Ivy League school. I never had to take a student loan. I have a master's degree. Uh, now, to get that, the same level of education that I was able to get, it would cost you over $100,000. How is this fair? Uh, it, it really isn't. Um, you, you know, my, my, uh, my college uh, is, has a, right, this year uh, or this coming year has a smaller class. Fewer people are going to college uh, at, my, at mm -hmm. my old school. And, um, I mean, this is, this is the economy we've created. We really do have yeah. a two-tiered society. It's, it's the wealthy and it's everybody else. And if you it doesn't matter if you are, um, if you are not a millionaire, you are not, you're not doing as well as, as at least you could be. Obviously, mm -hmm. obviously struggle is tiered and it depends on many factors, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation. These are things that, that play into people's economic prospects. But at the end of the day, if you are born into a wealthy family and you've got over a million dollars, you're probably going to do all right. Mm -hmm. And the same can't be said for every, everybody else. So there really has to be, uh, and I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm seeing this more um, in person than I am online. Uh, solidarity among people, yeah, and and, and their and the different movements, um, and I think that's I think that's a sign that perhaps things are not quite as fucked up as as Twitter would have you believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Twitter is quite the microcosm of things, isn't it? No, and I think you're right. You get um, you get some random trolls on there that get going, and a lot of we have to also keep in mind a lot of those folks are paid um, astroturfers. So I don't know, you know, like I always have to remind myself that it's only eight percent of the polled voters that think Bernie Sanders is, is Satan, you know, <laughs> because wait, me yeah. <laughs> right? It's eight percent when you're on Twitter, right? When you're on Twitter, it's like, what is? Why? Who are all these people that hate Bernie Sanders? I don't understand. <laughs> I think I think that if you get right down to it, you will find that most people today believe that healthcare costs are too high, and that health mm -hmm. it's probably time to make healthcare free for everybody. 
Um, yeah. I think that most people would agree that the disparity that exists um, is is a problem, and that there is uh, a disparity that is based on race. I think I think we're we are seeing among Democrats an acknowledgement that that past policies from the party, criminal justice reform, Wall Street deregulation, that these are not good policies. Um, and we're also seeing uh, that the deficit hawks have been completely discredited. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm hopeful for the future. And I, I do think that the, the trends, the demographic trends are are in are are uh, working uh, to benefit more progressive people. So that's that's a positive thing. But the meantime, we're yeah. going to, have to deal with some losses. It's gonna, it's gonna, there's gonna yeah. be a lot of losses. No, and I think you're right. I think you know. I think I was a little bit disappointed on the primaries on Tuesday. And you know, here's the other thing: you look at the voter turnout, and it's not, it's not what it should be. It's very low. So the other thing I feel like on the on the on the left, the progressive side of the the spectrum, the other thing we need to focus on and deal with is uh, voter apathy. We're not doing a good job of motivating people to the polls, and we're not going to get anywhere until people get out there and actually vote for what they think. You know, and I've talked to a lot of millennials when I was canvassing for Bernie in 2016, and a lot of them weren't registered and really had complete and total voter apathy. Like, oh yeah, we love Bernie. No, I'm not registered. Well, how are you going to vote for him if you're not registered? I can't tell you how many times I had that conversation. So I think in the way, you know, in a way we also have to do our sort of internal um, check of, of what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and maybe address some of the wrong things. And I think this is an area that we can definitely work on is um, doing a better job of motivating our folks to get out and vote. Um, I wanted to ask you, you did this other great piece uh, a few months back that exposed the Dems paying uh, Hillary Clinton for her email list. I believe the party was giving um, her new organization, Onward Together, more than $2 million uh, for the email list. Can you walk us through that piece and the scandal and how you first um, came across this information? So uh, that I was working on that piece with uh, Mike Sianato, um, who I, I'll give him a plug here because he's a, he's a great journalist, he's a great researcher and a great writer. And yeah. uh, he really is a hardworking guy who I, I, I've seen his work now appear in the nation. I'm, I'm very proud of, of him and, and his uh, trajectory. Um, yeah. But he, he had he had begun a, a substantial uh, he had a substantial draft about how Democrats were kind of hamstringing their own candidates. And we looked into in, into it, uh, and uh, it, it, the story kind of morphed into where the Democratic money was actually going, and then it kind of morphed into, oh wait, what are these payments to Onward Together? Mm-hmm. And 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 we reached out we, to the to the DNC, or I, I tweeted something about it, and the DNC reached out to me, mm. and they the they said, you know, well this was. We we were renting. We got her list. We bought the the email list from from uh, onward from Hillary Clinton's campaign, and the payments are, were freely assignable, and they assigned them to Onward Together. Now, 
<laughs> Clinton's email list was valued at something around $3.5 million. And wow. uh, the Democrats agreed to pay $1.5 million for it. So she in kind they, on, on their on their disclosure forms. And we are not sure we're still looking into if they if they made a, an error in their in their uh, reporting to the FEC. But they in-kinded the, the, the $3.5 million and then reported that they were giving $1.5 million to the, the campaign. There did not appear to be any transactional part to this, to this, um, hmm. to these, these, uh, payments. They just, they just right. seem to be separate payments. Um, and I talked to a campaign finance attorney who said there, there may be an error here. Um, so they're really, I, I don't know if this is a, a scandal or if it's just the party being the party and, um, giving, keeping Clinton's political aspirations afloat, even at the expense of races that they can't seem to fund adequately. Um, I mean, there, there are, there are races where there is no Democrat in the race in, in areas of the country that the Democrats have pledged to fight, um, Mm -hmm. particularly down South. And that's very problematic. Uh, I agree. And I don't understand why, you know, party Clinton claimed to be all about party loyalty and she, um, they, they, they hit Sanders over the head for, for not, you know, helping, supposedly not helping candidates down ballot. But as it turned out, the, the joint fundraising agreement was exclusively going to Clinton's campaign. The email That's list right. she created was with the help of the Democratic Party. And then at the end of the day, after her race, she still decides that she's going to make some money off of the party. It's to me, that doesn't seem very party loyalty. That seems like mm-hmm. personal loyalty or both looking out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not only it's not only looking out for herself, it's also insanely greedy. I mean, imagine these are the same folks that got angry that Bernie Sanders wouldn't just give them his list. Re- let's recall right. that. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is Obama, whose list, as far as I'm concerned, was far more valuable and probably had a greater amount of folks on it. He gave it his list to the DNC. It was the most valuable list at the time, but when he gave the list to the DNC, it had been used fairly heavily. So, okay, it's it's not like yes, um, Obama, I guess, could have done more. He could have given the list sooner when it was more valuable, but there was no. Well, I want money for my private group, and that's the difference. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's always it always seems to be some shady agreement, financial uh, transaction when it comes to to Clinton. That and mm-hmm. I I don't understand why that is. Um, people can draw their own conclusions, um, but it it does stand out that she wanted money for an email list, despite the fact that the Democratic Party was in trouble. Mm-hmm. And she knew yeah. she knew it was in trouble because she was in control yeah. of the party's finances since August of 2015. That's right. She had control of the party finances through the primary, through the general right. election. 
so uh, that it, 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 it's baffling. It is baffling. And in fact, that's the other part of the uh, story, Walker, in my opinion, is because she had control of the finances for so long, the state parties were very much starving. And this didn't benefit any of us. I sort of have this um, belief that one of our biggest problems was not supporting. You know, we walked away from a 50-state strategy, and we starved out a lot of the state parties, so they had no money to spend on, on their local elections. And I think, you know, everybody wants to talk about now about how badly the House seats have been gerrymandered by the Republicans. But I sort of think we have to look at what we did on our side to sort of make that happen. Because when we walked away from these things, we allowed, uh, you know, the, the House, let me back up, the House is gerrymandered by the state level Senate. So it's not done on a federal level. So if we lose a lot of state elections and the state, you know, becomes you know, full of a lot of Republicans and they decide to gerrymander the House in 2010 because that's the year we're doing it, we're in trouble. So all of these things are sort of interconnected in a way. And I think that this is the piece of the puzzle that nobody sort of wants to talk about. And I think it was a very bad, it was a very bad choice we made strategically. And, you know, and it's one of the other things that I have a big problem with with the Clintons because they didn't really think about the roosters coming home to roost in that capacity. And now it's so easy for them to say, well, the reason we don't control Congress is because the Republicans gerrymandered all the districts. Well, yeah, but. <laughs> you but see what I'm Democrats fell asleep Where were at the we? wheel. We were, exactly, Walker. We were sleeping at the wheel. We let, we let all of those state races and, and smaller states go. We walked away from giving them support. And well, these are the folks Obama. that made the decision. Well, that was largely because of Obama. I mean, Obama centralized power in the Democratic Party at the national, at the, in the Democratic National Com uh, Committee, as opposed to the okay. state parties, because the state parties had been loyal to Hillary Clinton in the primaries. Mm, and I, mean, I see what you're saying. Okay. And so, I mean, Karl Rove announced a, a red map in a Wall Street Journal editorial before the 2010 election, and the Democrats did not heed his warning. I mean, this was they announced what they were going to do. David Daly, has, uh, the former editor in chief of Salon.com, has a great book called Rat Fuck, uh, which goes into all of this, and I highly recommend it to anybody out there who wants to know more mm -hmm. about it. Um, and I mean, he's really he is really the expert on this. But the the Republicans announced their plan. The Democrats did not take the warning seriously, and the result was that they've effectively been shut out of the house out of the house for uh, a decade. And if and mm -hmm. frankly, if they if they if they win the control back of the house this November, then it then it will only have been eight years. But if they do not win the house. It will be a full decade, which I think gets to the point that it is so important that we redistrict um, because one party cannot cannot control uh, one one of the one of the houses of Congress for that long. It's just it doesn't work. No, and I agree. You know, in, in California, we have a we passed finally a proposition where where we've removed the ability to redistrict. Um, from both parties is now done independently. I think Iowa um, has some sort of legislation to this effect, so they have. If you look at the states that have done that, they pretty much have a 
population, a populist vote that matches the seat vote, meaning that they don't have 19 districts going to the Republican when the popular vote entirely goes to the Democrats, which we've seen, you know, in several of these states. So um, I wanted to actually back up and ask you, so you're, you're um, I mean, I'm putting thought into this. So you're saying this mainly was a decision that Obama made and not necessarily the Clinton side of the DNC. Let's talk about that for a second, because I, I don't, I don't think you're wrong on that. And I always, you know, I sort of wanted to lump all of that stuff in together as a neoliberal sort of thing, hot soup. But, but why did he choose, in your opinion, why did he choose to do that? Um, well, I think that during the, I think that during the primary in 2000, uh, 2008 presidential primary, uh, Clinton's support was largely at the state level. They had, uh, done a, a lot of influencing the state level and the state parties had a lot of, had a lot of more power, at least than they did in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. and Ob Obama kind of wanted to break that. He didn't want his own, uh, this is, and this is just my understanding of it. He did not want okay. his presidency to be uh, hampered by a rival, a defeated rival. Mm. Um, okay. Who, 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 I mean, let's be honest, Clinton did not run a very nice primary challenge to Obama. They, the Clintons had been ruthless during the primary. She, she circulated, yeah. her campaign had circulated a picture uh, of Obama in traditional uh, Muslim garb and, yeah. and, uh, you know, she definitely otherized him and then claimed that she wasn't dropping out of the race because what if, uh, because remember Bobby Kennedy and what happened to him? Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, she was, they, they were, they were ruthless. They have always, they have always been a ruthless political family. Um, yeah. And I, I think that Obama wanted to, to distance himself from that or not be under their thumb. And then, and then of course he made them an, an ally by uh, yeah. making Clinton Secretary of State, which may have been one of the worst decisions of, of his presidency, in my opinion, at least. Oh, I agree. I think that was, I, I, I'm going to say that was one of the worst decisions. You know, I you also recall Geraldine Ferraro had made all the commentary about um, him being a black male, and that was, they wouldn't be having these conversations if he wasn't, basically saying that the only reason uh, that he was able to pull this through and was getting support was because of that. And, you know, Geraldine Ferraro, who was the Democratic vice presidential nominee back in 84 with Walter Mondale atop the ticket, uh, said some, some very some, something very controversial. And I'll put it up on the screen, Donna, and get your reaction. If Obama was a white man, he would not be in this position. And if he was a woman, he would not be in this position. He happens to be very lucky to be who he is. And the country is caught up in the concept. Now, she's a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Now, what do you John, now, John Lewis, um, one of the superdelegates, had pulled his vote from Obama or from Clinton to Obama. But you know, here's the thing: Hillary Clinton said a lot of racist stuff during the 2008 primary, and you know, who can forget Harriet Christensen and her epic rant about how he's an inadequate black male? New York City, Hillary State, the best nominee that's possible. And the Democrats are throwing the election away for what? An inadequate black male? So I think 2008 really sort of, for the first time for me at least, showed me how much racism there was on the left. I had been sort of naive to it, I think, up to a certain level because I just hadn't 
seen it myself. And I just remember thinking all of a sudden in 2008, like, my God, we have, like, full-blown KKK racism going on here. This is insane. Uh, and then now we flash forward, and some of the same folks that were angry about that are now using the same arguments against Bernie Sanders, which sort of blew my mind. It was like they just were going to erase everything that had happened in 2008. And now Bernie's the racist guy for challenging uh, Hillary Clinton, you know? Uh, to a certain group of people, um, this is not everybody, uh, but to a certain group of people who are political uh, operatives, they have no real values. They don't, the ideology is less important than winning. And they mm. saw that they took, they took a lesson that this was, this was a winning strategy in 2008, mm -hmm. you know, that, or that, that the racism hurt. And David Brock took that lesson and he learned it well. And, and he, uh, he try he, the, the, the main effort now against progressives is they're out of touch with, um, with people of color. Yeah. And, and that's ridiculous yeah. because, because young people of color are driving the progressive movement. That's right. Uh, Alexandra, um, Ocasio Cortez is probably the most inspiring, uh, candidate in in the um in the running right now that i have seen she's a young yeah. uh a, a young person who has just had enough <laughs> of this yeah. of, of, of joe crowley primaries are always inconvenient for those in power aren't they you know when democrats are in the majority it's let's not rock the boat when democrats are in the minority it's we've got republicans to boot out but at the end of the day the advancing causes of social economic and racial justice in many aspects have been abandoned by certain members of the party and it's up to us as young people as activists as organizers to really hold the fort and bring the democratic party back to the championing of working class americans yeah. No, they don't hold up. You know, and, and the, which is always blows my mind when they try to say that Bernie was about white working class. And it's like, no, he's not. He's about working class. It's not white working class. And when you look at the numbers, it's not white men that are disproportionately affected by income inequality. So the argument absolutely holds no weight whatsoever. But they persist on uh, using it. And you're right. They learned a lesson in 2008 and they decided to apply because you're right. Most of these consultants don't have a heart and soul. They don't have any sort of commitment to ideas or ideologies or um, political beliefs in the way that you and I do. And that's what's missing. That is that they're soulless. All they care about is the paycheck, which is, you know, why I find it so disturbing that even now we still have so many lobbyists involved at, in leadership within the DNC. It's frightful. They, they, again, they've learned nothing. Sally Albright. Look at no, Sally Albright, Sally a, former, a former Gingrich staffer who, who now claims to be like a, a, right. a clarion voice for Democrats. She is a <laughs> she that she has no ideology, no real None. ideology besides money and power. That's yeah. it. That is really That's that is it. the full extent of what Sally Albright cares about. And I defy her to, to, to change my mind. <laughs> I, exactly. I, yeah, she won't I'll, be able I'll, to because how do you go from supporting Newt Gingrich to becoming a Democrat? In what world? <laughs> like, come on. Oh my because God, the Democrats Albright. are now more closely aligned with 1990 
uh, the 1990s Newt Gingrich than they yeah. are with FDR. That's mm-hmm. that's how. Yeah, no, you're not wrong on that. It's um, it's the fight that we're having. Is is do we need to become more like FDR again, or I think the 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 run is over. I don't see. I actually don't see the Democratic Party existing unless they sort of return to their uh, original love, their roots of of the working class and uh, those sort of rights in this country because they can't, you know, you run a Republican against a Republican and the Republican's going to, going to win. This is, you know, we've seen it time and time again. We've lost so many elections and yet they keep putting up these GOP-like candidates. And, you know, and then I loved how they were kind of throwing Doug Jones out there as this big win. And I'm like, my God, he barely squeaked by against a pedophile. He's renting his seat. Get out of here. This is not, this is not a big win, you know? Yeah, no, he's, I mean, Doug, Doug Jones is, is not the path forward for Democrats. Doug Jones squeaked mm. by because he was running against a credibly accused child molester who yeah. uh, was obviously a terrible candidate. But had he been not a credibly accused child molester, would have would have won easily. He would have defeated yeah. Doug Jones. And that's because... Oh, I agree. Look, Doug Jones, um, his record on fighting the KKK is is commendable. He, uh, I can understand why many people thought he was an inspiring candidate. However, he really hurt himself by staking middle of the road economic positions. We we are living at a time when most of America is struggling. Or doing worse than they than they are used to be to doing, and that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the key thing that people miss. Everybody, you know, there's mm-hmm. whole debate over economic anxiety, or or was it racism and bigotry? It it's both. It's, <laughs> it's both. both yeah, people are more prone to. I mean, their 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 existing biases are more able to be exploited when they feel that they are doing worse than they should be doing. And that's, it's perception based. But in addition to the perception, they are actually doing worse than they should be. Most, most of America, except the super rich are doing worse than they should be doing and deserve more than they have. The rich deserve a lot less than they have, but everybody else deserves more. I agree. Uh, you know, if somebody works 40 hours a week, at the end of the day, they should be able to pay rent, buy food, and have a little bit left over for savings or for entertainment, whatever else. And, you know, in the city of Los Angeles, that's not even possible. Our minimum wage um, is $15 an hour, so we actually raised it separate from the rest of the country. And that's still not enough. I mean, really, theoretically, you need to be making $30 an hour in Los Angeles if you want it to get by. I mean, that's just a reality. That's just how expensive real estate is. That's how expensive rent is, how expensive all of these things are. Um, and what was it? The, something like 87% of the new wealth created in 2017 went to the top 1% of earners. That's absolutely not sustainable. So even if I can't compel somebody on the moral argument about income inequality, the the economic one at the end of the day should uh, worry you because at some point when you have a base that can no longer purchase things, they have no um, expendable income, 
and our economy is driven by that, it's going to be a problem. This doesn't end well for the 1% either at the end of the day. So, look, and even let's say, let's do a hypothetical here. Let's yeah. say the world, let's say climate change really, really fucks us up in the next 10 years. And mm-hmm. most of humanity uh, is suffering and, and, and the rich, you know, cordon themselves off and, and hunker down and, and, uh, and, and whatnot. What the hell do they think is going to happen to them when they are, you know, with, <laughs> with their, with their workers? I mean, at a certain mm-hmm. point, there are more ordinary schmoes than there are, um, That's right. you know, uh, ham- autonomy. In a sense. yeah, this is going to sound funny coming from me, but they're, they're more ordinary people than there are Hamptonite elite cocktail crowd uh yeah you know folks so yeah the numbers the numbers do not paint a pretty picture and nor does history we've seen what happens when you ignore that's right this the struggle and and we should be doing everything we can to avoid getting to that point i agree you know there's it is you know and here's the interesting thing is they keep talking about how great the economy is doing, that unemployment's really low, blah, blah, blah. But it really, if you look at the underlying data, the economy is not is not this robust thing that they're painting it to be. The only reason unemployment's so low is because it only gauges who's currently accepting unemployment. So if you fall off the unemployment rolls, you know, which is, what, six months, you're not getting counted anymore. So we don't really know what the actual unemployment rate is. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you look at it, the numbers, they don't address on the top form, they don't address the income inequality, which is really the sickness that's that's problematic. I don't care if we have a low unemployment rate if everybody's struggling to make ends meet because they're not getting paid anything. It you know, I mean, this is it's like the argument between median and mean at the end of the day. It's like, you know, if you look at the, an average of five, doesn't it matter whether it's nine on one side and one on the other or four and six? I mean, those are two very different pictures. Indeed, they are. Look, people, I, I don't think anybody was, li- was lining up in the streets uh, at Ducati Park saying, we want more jobs and fewer benefits. We want longer hours. <laughs> so let's right? say. Like, I, <laughs> That is not the sentiment. People, people want to yeah. work. They want to work less hard than they are working now. And mm-hmm. it's not because they're lazy. It's because they're killing themselves. If they're people killing want, themselves with two jobs, yeah. Two more than that. Millions yeah, of Americans right now are, are are have have more than one job. The working poor. Um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, so I don't want to venture. But I was looking at them earlier. It, it's staggering. It is yeah. tens of millions of people are qualify as working poor, and that right. that is something that needs to be addressed. And look, it should have been addressed during the Obama years. And I will mm-hmm. I will give President Obama a certain amount of leniency despite the fact that he came in with a historic grassroots movement and a landslide and had a supermajority in the Senate and a majority in the House. I'll give him a little bit of leniency and chalk it up to inexperience that he did not capitalize on that. Still, Democrats 
are paying for his mistakes. And they will continue to pay for his mistakes until they show the American people that they acknowledge that they were mistakes in the first place. (laughs) No, that's right. I don't disagree. Um, So you have a political science degree. I wanted to ask you if you have a favorite uh, political philosopher. So my, I've always loved Henry David Thoreau, and I don't know if he counts oh, as a political love, philosopher. Yeah, are you kidding me? Beat of a different drum. Yes, we love Thoreau. <laughs> but I, I, I always loved Henry David Thoreau. And then um, uh, I have, I mean, obviously, obviously, um, I, I love uh, Hamilton. Secretary Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton. Your response. You must be out of your goddamn mind if you think the president is gonna bring the nation to the brink of meddling in the middle of a military mess, a game of chess where France is queen and kingless. Who signed a treaty with a king whose head is now in a basket? Would you like to take it out and ask it? Or should we honor our treaty, King Louis' head? Uh, do whatever you want. I'm super dead. Enough. Enough. Hamilton is right, Mr. President. We're too fragile to start another fight, but. Sir, do we not fight for freedom? Sure, when the French figure out who's gonna lead them. The people are leading. The people are rioting. There's a difference. Frankly, it's a little disquieting. You would let your ideals blind you to reality. Hamilton, sir, draft a statement of neutrality. Did you forget Lafayette? What? Have you an ounce of regret? You accumulate debt, you accumulate power, yet in their hour of need, you forget. Lafayette's a smart man. He'll be fine. And before he was your friend, he was mine. If we try to fight in every revolution in the world, we never stop. Where do we draw the line? So quick-witted. Alas, I admit it. I bet you were quite a lawyer. My defendants got acquitted. Yeah. Well, someone ought to remind you. What? You're nothing without Washington behind you. Hamilton. Daddy's calling. I find, <laughs> I find wisdom um, and in, instructive, I find instructive wisdom in the writings of the founding generation. Uh, I think I think more contemporary philosophers are are probably uh, better equipped to handle the the problems that we face today. People like Ayn Rand. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I am kidding. <laughs> you know, Obviously, I, I, I know you're kidding. Always... There's no way Walker Bragman loves Ayn Rand. There's I've no always way. loved me some good Ayn Rand. <laughs> Um, I, I, I've always liked Henry David Thoreau. I, I, I think that, I think if, and, 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 but, but the, and, and Eugene Debs for me, I think. Is, oh, yeah, 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 Eugene. Yeah, absolutely. Debs. Okay, let me change my answer. I def, I, I, I'm going to go with Debs. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Just, yeah. No, he's great. Well, you know, I like I, that you brought up the founding fathers because the the founding fathers they borrowed very heavily from the Enlightenment period writers, like all of them. So, um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from from that period even now. You know, like Adam Smith gets very bastardized by folks that have not really read all of his writings. They think he's the I, I love this when they call him the father of capitalism, which is so fucking ridiculous. Adams was an Enlightenment period writer. Capitalism is a 19th century concept. So this is not even in the realm of reality. Um, and Adam Smith, you know, writes deeply about labor. Um, he was very much pro-workers having a 
keeping a fair share of the value of their production. So, you know, I think um, people would be very shocked to find that that he's not this libertarian darling at all. Um, what about uh, Rousseau? Maybe I don't know John Stuart Mills. I mean, these folks have a lot John to Locke. say about. Yeah, sure. John Locke, of course, absolutely. Honestly, Karl Marx as well. All right, Karl Marx. Is, yeah, I think absolutely. I think Karl yeah, Marx got a lot wrong, but I also think that the underlying idea that class and uh, that a class divide drives human history mm-hmm. um, it has some has some merit. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. And I also find myself um, having a lot of conversations lately for some reason about how we define socialism. And, you know, obviously Karl Marx had a, had a vision of that, but he's certainly not the only vision of socialism. And I don't know why uh, there's a lot of misinformation that circulates around that as well. I think, uh, you know, you also have the anarcho-socialists that don't that don't think the government or the state should have any say in a socialist policy or a socialist government, that that, is, and that the, the means of production are directly handled by the population in the democracy. So it's certainly not the only version of it. And I, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was quote tweeted by, as you saw, Candace Owens, um, last week on this very thing and she sort of made this strange conflation about socialism being welfare and it's not at all these are two different things i mean i can say that the fire department is a socialist institution and it clearly is by definition i don't and, want no more but, of your damn highways god damn it I know. <laughs> right i mean but she brought in the whole like flat screen tv thing like and I'm like, well, I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe that could be a thing if we buy everybody a TV, demo, you know, we all pull our money together collectively and everybody gets a TV out of the deal. Not what I'm talking about, but okay. <laughs> I mean, but don't you find yourself reading some of this stuff and thinking to yourself, these folks actually don't understand what any of these terms mean? No, they, they don't. Well, there is, I mean, look, people have, the state of education in this country is pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to civics, we no longer teach it. <laughs> Our understanding of American history is 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 lacking. Uh, we get fed myths, and then we never get the we never they're never corrected. Um, I, I I don't know. I I think I think that we are slowly we we have to learn by experience. People have to learn by experience, and that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you we are seeing people come into the political process for the first time, and they're they're realizing how the sausage is made, and they're they're not liking it. And <laughs> you don't. And I have to say, there is a movement on the left uh, where people are saying, like, "Oh, Dem exit, leave the Democratic Party." I understand the sentiment. I sympathize with the sentiment. But mm-hmm. just because you now know how sausage is made and you do not like it does not mean that you just completely abandon. Oh, it's a really terrible, terrible analogy. Uh, Actually, no, it's a good one, Walker. Oh, no, because you can stop eating sausage. <laughs> but, <You> can stop- <laughs> but, but if you stop eating sausage, somebody else is going to be eating the sausage. And the industry right. is going to keep going, and it's going to keep surviving. Right. I, mean, I guess it's, I guess it works. It's going to keep going without you. 
it'll keep going without you and you won't it, you won't stay, you know sure if enough people if enough people leave uh maybe maybe the sausage industry isn't quite as as big or powerful or has has any real say but that doesn't put you any closer to uh being a viable alternative or having a viable alternative the democratic mm-hmm. party at its core is just an apparatus it's a bunch of lists and and people loyal voters who will no matter what vote democratic even if they're if they're registered independent the most independents as i'm sure you know are disguised partisans so yeah people need to get active and 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 these primaries these losses that we get so frustrated at and say oh never again fuck the democratic party i'm out those losses are because people said fuck you i'm out yeah you're right no you're right there are more angry people than there are happy people today. Use that. Mm-hmm. Anger can be power. Joe Strummer, another another political philosopher who I like. Well, of course, um, back in the day, she was the the symbol of everything that we hated. But I must say, I've had a few people say this to me in the last week or two that people have feel slightly nostalgic for her. And people have said to me, well, at least she was upfront about it. Which is, this is the national feeling, I think, because at least we knew where we were with Margaret Thatcher. She said, I'm a right wing and, you know, I'm gonna be a right wing person. And like, but with Tony Blair, it's like fudge or toffee. It's like a fog of uncertainty. I think people are just fed up with politics because we waited 18 years for this. <laughs> and it's far worse. <laughs> There's a new saying in Britain, and it goes like this. We gotta get rid of Tony Baloney. <laughs> okay? We gotta get rid of Tony Baloney. <laughs> More contemporary. <laughs> no, you're right. We cannot say fuck you, I'm out. That's exactly I'm I'm so glad you're saying that. We have to we have to stage our own coup in the same way the DLC did back in the nineties. Yep. Um, we have we have to do that and and we have to be committed to that because what they want is what they want. Why they're where they're they're going through all of these machinations so that we do say fuck you, I'm out. That's exactly what they want. They want us gone. Yeah. I, the, the message should be Fuck you! I'm sticking around, and I'm bringing my friends with me this time. Yeah, exactly. Like we don't like you, and so we're gonna go out and get like 15 more people, so that at the next committee meeting that you have, we outnumber you. That's we're right. gonna get up in your candidates' face. I mean, this is—I uh, I saw Zephyr teach out um, when I when I was still—I believe I was still in college. And she was giving a lecture and she said, I am a student of the Tea Party. And that struck me because I, hmm. I had been, it, it, it lined up with what I'd been here learning in, in class, which was, you know, it's very hard for politicians to stare down an angry mob. And so if you, if you go to their town hall, if you heckle them, if you, if you, if you wake up early and you show up and you, and you force them to address the things that they don't want to address, that will have a profound impact on how on, on, on how much respect you are given. We've already seen all the 2020 Democratic hopefuls, with the exception of Joe Biden, who will fizzle out like Jeb Bush. 
every single mm-hmm. one of them has has come out to some degree or another and endorsed Sanders' platform. 